Dead Bodies is not for the squeamish and is intended for mature audiences. wondering why I'm playing that it's because I'm all by myself and there is no Didi but you will hear Didi we're just not recording together for this episode and I need to explain why so we well I found out yesterday that George Pell who for long time listeners you'll know I followed every single one of his uh, court hearings he is his appeal is going to be decided in the high court tomorrow uh, on Wednesday and I need to fly to Canberra for work to cover that and we were going to record on the Tuesday but now we can't so we didn't want to skip a week, uh, so we're doing this separately, which I'm really sad about, but Kirst is going to work her magic on this, hopefully, and intertwine our stories and put some feedback on the end as well. Um, so I'm just hoping that this all works out, but my heart is already lonely without Dee Dee, so I'm just going to get stuck into a story. Now, this is a story that I actually found it popped up uh, in a news feed and it's the story of Olivia Grant. I need to heavily credit the New York Times for this um, because I used a lot of their information. So Olivia was six years old and she had a terminal illness called, I don't even know how to say this, neurogastrointestinal enephalomopathy. Anyway, it's a disease that pretty much attacks your vital organs. And as we often see with children who are severely ill, there is a wonderful foundation we all know is the Make-A-Wish Foundation, and they approached Olivia and her family to do exactly that. So in February 2017, they transformed her into Bat Princess for the day so she could save other princesses from evil villains. And this was a really huge event. Uh, Olivia said she wanted to battle with Batman and Ursula and Captain Hook to save Bella and Ariel. So staff at her dialysis center in Denver agreed to take part. They all dressed up. They lined the hallways and Olivia battled her way to save the princesses. During this, Olivia's mother was there and uh, her name is Kelly Turner and she told journalists, you can give back all the money in the world and I would give it all back um, for you to be able, you know, to have her daughter healthy again. So six months after that wonderful day in their lives, following numerous surgeries and hospital stays, Olivia lost her battle with the rare disease and she passed away. But after Olivia passed away, Kelly Turner, her mother, started bringing in her other daughter for medical treatment and medical staff became really suspicious. So she told them that her daughter had been treated, this is the 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 daughter that's still alive, she said to medical staff her daughter had been treated for cancer in Texas, but medical staff quickly worked out the doctor 
she was talking about wasn't real. They also started looking through her Facebook pages. So some really good work done here by these um, doctors and nurses. They looked through her medical pages and they found um, that Ms. Turner had described her child's medical conditions on Facebook and none of those descriptions matched her actual medical records. So after a year-long investigation, it was found that Kelly had treated her daughter Olivia, this is the one that was involved in the Make-A-Wish Foundation, and had passed away for conditions that she never had. So really, Olivia Olivia was never sick. Um the medical care uh, that she was given while she was in hospice, uh, Kelly withdrew her from. It was also revealed that Kelly Turner has a long history. I'm recording this at home and my dogs have started barking. <laughs> um, it was also revealed that Kelly Turner has a long history of presenting doctors with fo- with false information and she would diagnose her children. I'm doing you know, convert commas in my, with my hands, um, with, she would diagnose them with medical conditions that she'd found online. Um, and she would also solicit financial support from charities. You can see where this is going, uh, to help her daughters get medical treatment. Several doctors came forward saying Olivia was never terminally ill and was shocked to learn that she'd been withdrawn from medical treatment. Um, Others disputed her cause of death and Olivia, and this is so awful, Olivia was eventually exhumed from her grave in November last year. The best cause of death they could come up with at that point was undetermined. And I just, I do also wonder if that's because you know, she was getting all these kinds of medical treatment and perhaps there were drugs in her system and they couldn't actually determine if there was anything wrong with her at all. Now, when Kelly was interviewed by police, she mentioned a disorder. Now, I don't know, this is when I wish Dee Dee was here because I think she would be able to say this called Munch, Munchausen syndrome. And she said she didn't have it. And she brought it up really casually. It hadn't been mentioned by police officers, but she's just brought it up out of nowhere. And she said, I don't have that syndrome. Now that syndrome is a mental disorder in which a parent induces illness in a child to get attention. So to even know what that is, um, is quite interesting, but she's said out of nowhere to police that she didn't have it. She said, it's never been the case. Um, and you know, you could go and ask anyone. I'm not like that. So all up Kelly Turner raised more than $22,000 from 161 donors who all contributed to a GoFundMe page. She asked for that money to cover medical expenses that she wasn't covered for. She also received another $3,000 from a charity organization. Her children were both covered for health care, but she, you know, did allegedly a good job at um, accessing that money too. It's alleged that she made up fake documents so that she could access $538,000 from Medicaid and she also owes about $5,000 still for Olivia's funeral and burial. The Make-A-Wish um, Foundation that was put together, uh, the Make-A-Wish Day that was put together for Olivia cost the foundation more than $11,000 um, but 
Make-A-Wish Foundation, being the lovely people that they are, they didn't wish to seek charges against uh, the mother, against Callie for that, because at the end of the day, they realised that what they were doing was for Olivia. And even if she didn't have those illnesses, she still believed that she did. All up, Kelly uh, Turner was indicted on 13 charges, including charitable fraud and murder. Uh, It's still very much ongoing. You can Google this um, case, Olivia Grant murder. If you look it up, it comes up with articles as recent as October 21, 2019, so not long ago at all. Um, They talk about her arrest. You can see photos online of her... um, And you can actually see videos from that Make-A-Wish day that they had for her. She's a really, really cute little girl. So an awful, awful story about how I guess she was duped into thinking she was sick and eventually died and now her mother's been charged. Thank you, Chanel. That's it. That's a horrible story. That reminds me very much of the um, uh, Dee Dee Blanchard and Gypsy Rose. I hope I'm getting their names correct. That mother that pretended, well, I think she had Munchausen's by proxy, didn't she? Made out that her daughter was ill and tried to benefit from it and eventually she got away. They made that into a miniseries. I'm sure I saw it bob up on on Foxtel or Netflix or one of those just recently. Uh, Horrible story, that poor little girl, and she's so sweet. We'll put those pictures up on our Facebook page when the episode is released. Um, Chanel, you may have introduction music, but look what I've got. It's the Terry Bell. Got it here with me. Lives in my house. I'm in my house. I can interrupt myself if I want to. Diddy. There it is. No need for it. Just letting you know. It's there. I have for you the story, uh, a couple of stories actually, that came out of Melbourne's Royal Botanic Gardens because I started off looking for Um, where a dead body had been found in a happy place. I was looking at theme parks, which I may still come back to sometime. The number of people that have died in theme parks is just horrendous. Um, And somehow I ended up with the Botanic Gardens because they're such beautiful places. When you go there, you realise, why don't I come here all the time? You know, there are beautiful lawns and trees and it's peaceful. You can hear birds singing. And they are Melbourne's Botanic Gardens are particularly beautiful. They were built back in 1846. They're over 36 hectares. If you've been to Melbourne, you'll know they're right next to the city on the Yarra River. Beautiful. Uh, there was a murder there in 2014. A jogger found the naked body of a young woman in the gardens and it didn't take police very long to hone in on a suspect. He was a 42-year-old man called Scott Allen Miller and he'd been sleeping rough in a rotunda which is in the park, not far from where the body was found. Police had known about him. He was um, had come across from Western Australia and he'd moved to Melbourne about six weeks earlier. He was very quickly arrested and charged with murder. The unfortunate victim was a 32-year-old woman, a pastry chef by the name of Yukling Lau, although while she was living here in Australia, she was using the name Renee. And Renee had been going to work, walking along St Kilda Road towards Flinders Street Station. She wanted to catch a train to South Yarra where she worked. Uh, Miller at that time had been thrown out of a night spot. He'd been drinking a lot and harassing women there and he dragged her into the gardens. He beat her unconscious and raped her. 
several people who were walking past saw them but thought that they were a couple having consensual sex, which does occasionally happen in the gardens too, um, and so they didn't step in to help. When she was sentencing Miller, Justice Betty King uh, described his killing of Renee as incredibly violent and evil. He was sentenced to 33 years in prison with a minimum term of 28 years. So as I said, the gardens are such a lovely, tranquil, pretty place. You, uh, to have a violent act happen there just seems so out of place. Um, let's go back a further 90 years to 1924. It was a Wednesday, January the 23rd, so right in the middle of the Australian summer. It was a lovely warm day and it was quite late in the afternoon at the Melbourne Botanical Gardens. People were having picnics, they were lying on the lawns. I probably made up the picnic bit because you wouldn't be having a picnic late in the day, would you? Oh, maybe you would, early dinner. I have my dinner early. What time do you have dinner, Dee Dee? Well, in my house we have dinner at about... 4.30 or 5. Chanel, that seems very early, Didi. Yes, it is, Chanel. Um, my husband's a tradesman. He's up at the crack of dawn and he uh, is starving by 4.30 because building sites knock off at 3. He comes home, he's hungry. Um, I'm up for a meal at any time even if I haven't been up from Sparrow's Fart. And the kids are also up for... Oh, I should stop ringing the Terry Bell in our house. That's the bell to ring every, get everyone to come in for dinner. They'll all come charging and looking for food. All right, back to my story. January 23, 1924. Uh, the Melbourne Botanical Gardens may be having picnics, lying on the lawns, people going for a walk. Now, at 6.30pm, a man arrived. He was carrying a brown paper parcel tied with string and inside that parcel was a is it 0.44 is that how you say it I hope it is where's Chanel when I need her a 0.44 repeating rifle he hid in the bushes and he watched people for a while and then with absolutely no warning and it would seem no motive and no knowledge of the people he didn't know his victims he opened fire within five minutes he'd shot five people Three of them died and two of them were very badly injured. He didn't know any of these people. Um, the first one, Eugenie Strohacker, was 39 and she had been sitting on a park bench knitting and her three children were with her, eight, five and 11 months old. Eugenie had been born in Germany. She'd been living in Australia for 10 years with her husband. She was deaf, so unless she actually visually like saw him, she wouldn't have heard him coming. She was shot in the neck and she fell to the ground and died. And the newspaper's description of the scene at the time, and I should just credit uh, trove.nla.gov.au, which is um, the online, uh, They've all of our old newspaper archives are online and that's where I dug all these details up from. Um, the eight-year-old daughter uh, was calling out to her mummy, are you sick, mummy? And uh, so people came in to help her and tried to take the little girl to safety, but she said that she wouldn't leave without her mother. 42-year-old Marie Parry was on the lawn with her baby girl and a bullet hit her in the jaw 
It went down her throat and ended up lodged in her back. But she was still alive and she was calling out, Oh, my baby, oh, my baby. Uh, John Moxham was 37. He was an accountant from Essendon and he was lying on the lawn with his wife, Maud. They had their two, two children with them at aged eight and five. He put his hand up as the gunman fired at him and his fingers were, I don't know if they were blown off, but he def- certainly his hand was shattered by the bullet. And then another bullet hit him in the back and he said, I've been shot by a man, but I do not know why he shot me. And uh, John Moxham survived for two days in hospital, but then he died. Frederick McElwain was 75 and a widower. He lived in South Yarra, but he'd um, he was actually an Irishman. He had just come back to Australia. He'd been living in Ireland for two decades and he was sitting under a cypress tree on the eastern lawn at the gardens. He was hit in the chest and died instantly and he was buried later at the Brighton General Cemetery. should just credit their website as well because that's where I got some information from. Um, Frederick McIlwain had been due to go back to Ireland just a few days later and he was buried beside his twin brother. 35-year-old Miriam Podbury was a maid. It was her day off and she was sitting on a bench reading a book and the gunman shot her in the throat and she also died. Apparently her body was still sitting on the bench with her head just sort of to the side. Can you imagine this scene? Uh, So the gunman at this point threw the rifle into the bushes, jumped a fence and ran off and the Argus newspaper reported the scene in the gardens. It said, um, I should do it in the voice, shouldn't I? But I feel silly doing it on my own. Um, I only do it to amuse the others. Uh, A man seriously wounded was lying on the ground, surrounded by his horror-struck children. Some distance away, a man and a woman, apparently dead, were lying with their faces buried in the grass. They were surrounded with blood. By now, uh, the police had been alerted. They were on the lookout for a shooter. They stopped a man who was a bit agitated, but he didn't have a gun. So they let him go and he went off and got into a cab. Uh, Within an hour, there were as many as 200 police in the area hunting the gunman. And by this time, darkness had started to fall. So it wasn't until the next morning when it got light again that they found the rifle that had been used. It was still loaded with four cartridges and there was an ammunition box nearby and there was also brown paper and string there. So this was the man with the parcel that had been carried in. Uh, Just a little side note here, some years later a Melbourne detective got hold of that gun and discovered that it had in fact jammed. So the death toll in this incident could have been much higher if the rifle had worked properly. So the newspapers ran a description of the man that they were hunting, about 26 years old, 5 feet 2, actually turned out to be 5.6, 5 foot 6, but um, that's short isn't it? Slim build, sallow complexion, a big nose, some gold teeth and an unusual way of speaking. Uh, It turned out later he'd been living in America for a while so he had a little bit of an accent. Uh, With no motive, very few witnesses, the search for the killer was slow. Police went to a gunsmith on Burke Street in the city who had sold this actual rifle. It was an American-made Marlin repeating rifle and so the gunsmith was able to give a description of the customer who had bought the rifle and it matched what people who had seen the man at the gardens. Um, 
they also went to the police also tracked down any people or, who had been away from their job or their home at the time of the attack and matched those names obviously the population was much smaller gee that would be hard to do now uh, but they matched those names with the description given to them by the witnesses and the gunsmith before very long they had narrowed it down to one name a man called Norman Albert List so with that information they put out a more detailed description which I found a little bit amusing. Listen to the detail in this. Age 31 years, looks about 27 or 27 years, 5 feet 2 inches in height, of medium build, good shoulders. wonder what would constitute bad shoulders, hunchy ones, I suppose. Uh, small at the waist. High, sounds like Marilyn Monroe so far. Uh, cheekbones, upper portion of teeth and mouth prominent, a large mouth, well-kept teeth. A large number of teeth in upper and lower jaws, which is probably where you want your teeth, in your jaw, not growing out of your backside. Uh, Crowned and filled with gold, dark complexion, brown eyes, thin nose with a lump just below the bridge. Black hair, not of very smart appearance, wearing a dark grey, clerical grey, of rough material, uh, that's his suit, dark grey hat and striped cotton shirt. I guess this is all assuming that he hasn't changed in the days since he did it. Uh, Generally wears soft collars and board end ties and brown boots. Never wears watch, chain or rings. The people of Melbourne were panicked. There were reports of List being seen in Kensington, Footscray, Mornington, Maryborough and I think it's pronounced Talangata, Talangata. Uh, someone said they'd seen a man who looked like John List wearing women's clothes and carrying two suitcases at Inglewood Station. Just on that point, there was another version that I read that said that police were sort of saying, look, he could look any different way and they'd done different sketches of him and one of the ones that they did was of him disguised as a woman as if to say, keep your eyes out for a woman that might look like this because it could be him. Um Still didn't catch him. It was nine days after the massacre, a man named Charles Johnson was picking bracken fern for his chooks on the Deep Creek near Army Settlement Road in Pakenham, which is somewhere that John List had gone to um, play and stay with relatives when he was younger. Charles Johnson noticed flies swarming and went to have a look and he found a dead body. Uh, So Johnson, quoted in the paper, said, At the edge of the creek I saw the body of a man. The feet and ankles were in the water. The body was lying on the face, and to me it seems as if the man had pitched across the water and fallen heavily and broken his neck. I did not touch the body, but I looked at it closely and at once thought it corresponded exactly to the published descriptions of List. He called the cops and the body did in fact turn out to be List. A mortician established that he'd actually killed himself by cutting the arteries in his wrists. They hunted for a coat and vest which were missing from List's body and they couldn't find it. I've actually only included this so that I can tell you what the newspapers reported because we certainly wouldn't put something like this in today. So in looking for this coat and vest they said, it is probable that black trackers will be engaged to assist in the search. List's sister confirmed that the body was him. He had a tattoo of a woman on his right forearm and at 
around that same time, the papers reported that the condition of Marie Parry, who was the last surviving victim of the what they were calling the Botanic Gardens outrage, was still in serious condition. She actually did. She did survive. Norman Albert List had been born on the 4th of April, 1893, in Melbourne, and at the time of the shooting, he was 30. His mother had died, so uh, he was living with his father and sisters in Richmond. Police went to their home and searched his room, and they found the frame of a safety razor. Its blade was missing, and that blade was later found in the pocket of his trousers, so that must have been what he used to cut his wrists with. He had a sales catalogue for a rifle, just like the one he had bought, and had handwritten notes about the ammunition. His family said that Norman thought that people were talking about him. Hello. Uh, police he worked with said that he claimed they were telling lies about him and his father and sisters. He thought people were controlling his mind while he slept and that someone was sending wireless messages to injure the family. Uh, other people said that he had a persecution complex. He thought everyone had it in for him. And Norman had complained that his enemies in America had a system of radio that advertised him wherever he went so that people always knew about him before he arrived anywhere. Now, I think in modern days, today, if this crime happened now, there certainly would be, um, his mental health would be brought into question because clearly he has some symptoms of, of schizophrenia or um, bipolar disorder. Probably he would have been treated were he alive today, but certainly in those days that was how they dismissed things. And I, just to show you how things were treated differently in those days, because by all accounts he was quite an intelligent man, very well read, and I think he spoke a couple of languages. But the newspapers reported that Norman List was deranged from too much reading. And there you have the Melbourne Botanic Gardens uh, incorporating the Botanic Gardens massacre. Now, for our first bit of feedback on this episode... We're actually going all the way to California. So exciting for us when we have listeners in other countries. Thank you for listening to our podcast. So we had an email from Carter who uh, there was just a tone to the email which really made it clear that she was actually struggling to process what she'd seen. Um, and so we asked if she could put it into words herself. She's done that and we would love you to try and do the same. If you have a dead body story, by all means, record it like we've done with this episode on your voice memos on your phone and just send it through to deadbodiespodcast at gmail.com. So I'll let Carter take it from here. Hi, Charnel and Dee Dee and Kirsten. I'm Carter and I'm a listener from California. Um who found uh, her first dead body experience um, a couple weeks after beginning to listen to your podcast. So this is your fault. I'm just kidding. There's no way that could be why. Uh, it's probably my fault. I probably manifested this. I didn't want this. I always knew that um, if I ever saw a dead body, I wouldn't be able to handle it. Because I'm the type of person who, when I see emergency vehicles or hear them... I worry about whoever's in trouble. And when I saw emergency vehicle lights from outside the window of this restaurant that me and my friends were eating at um, in my college town, I was just 
pretty concerned. And so one night, um, a little while ago, um, my friends and I were there at this restaurant and I began to see those lights and was, we began to investigate as we were eating, drinking, having a casual time or looking out. Um, and then one of my friends notices, yeah, there's a guy out there laying on the ground. And we kind of started to postulate about what that, what that could be. Um, maybe it's someone who is having a drug related issue, which would be sad. Maybe it's someone who's, um, yeah, like homeless, having some other kind of health problem, also sad. Um, but then one of my friends noticed that there was blood on the ground and I'm like eating a fried chicken sandwich and drinking a beer. So I'm in no way prepared to deal with that. And then we start seeing them bring out a stretcher. All these vehicles are out there, but there's no sirens and there's no real emergency going on. But in the back of my head, I was hoping, you know, maybe he's going to be okay. Maybe whoever this is, they're, they'll, they'll take care of him. Maybe there's no sirens because it's not actually an emergency. Uh, for a good reason. And as it turns out... There was no emergency because there was nothing to be done. Uh, we we were not able to put together at the time, at that exact time, that the reason why he was there was because he had fallen from the parking structure above. And we found that out a little bit after we left the restaurant, I think. And we went to another bar and kept drinking because that's what we do with our pain. Um, and I started to feel really strange and bad and numb. Very uncomfortable. Because it just seemed like such a horrible thing was happening, but we were still trying to have a casual time. I don't know what you're supposed to do. That's the thing. There's nothing you can really do, but I just kept acting normal until I got kind of tired and went home. My boyfriend came home and he asked me about what happened because I had texted him and I started talking to him about it. Then I'm freaking out. I'm panicking. I'm calling my mom. I'm pacing around barefoot in the backyard on broken glass that has been left by other uh, individuals. (sighs) College town. Let me reiterate that one. Um, but after I kind of calmed down enough to just stop doing what I was doing and go inside, I was still clearly out of sorts and my boyfriend was trying to calm me down. He was trying to bring up topics that were things that I had randomly brought up earlier, like, uh, what was that weird 80s baby doll monkey thing you were talking about? And I was like, Monchichi, I don't know. My mom told me about it. I saw it online recently. I don't know. Um, which did distract me enough to go to sleep. I have since had one more like absolute freak out about the whole event, calling my parents being like, I don't know what you're supposed to do when someone dies. I don't even know him. I feel weird. I feel guilty. It's not my trauma. Why do I feel so bad? I need to get my shit together because how is it that I'm having such a conniption about this if 
if it's not even my friend or family member, but it really got me because it's the first time. And I've really not even had anyone I know who, who's been close to me who has, who has died. So um, since that has happened, um, I recently got a text message sent to me from a friend of a flyer that was somewhere. The flyer says, A 21-year-old man died one month ago at 9 p.m. falling from the parking structure. He had texted a friend at 7 p.m. saying that he would be home soon. So I feel terrible. I feel even worse because he was only 21. Um, I'm almost 23. He's within my age range. I don't understand like how something so insane could happen to somebody like that. Like what? Um, there's a police investigation. And the, the reason this was posted was that they're looking for information. So this happened in San Luis Obispo, California. Um, I might as well add. Uh, it happened on September 14th, and some some weird stuff happened. It says this this guy was given so much to drink by some man in his 50s that his blood alcohol level was 4.5 times the legal limit. They had been at the Frog and Peach Bar, which is one of the popular downtown local bars, until 8 p.m. When the young man got very upset and left, he was seen falling down in the street and had a broken right elbow with a brace on it, which sounds like a, a situation. I don't know. I, that must have happened before, I guess. A chase scene between the two men. A chase scene. Why? What? You, so I'm... This is a mystery. A chase scene between the two men erupted between the Frog and Peach, throughout downtown, and ending at the Marsh Street parking structure where this terrible accident occurred. And they're asking if anybody saw anything in relation to that. Um, And before that, that day, they had been in Morro Bay for several hours from about 1.30 in the afternoon. I'm wondering why was this 21-year-old man hanging out with this guy in his 50s? How did he get so drunk? Why was he running through the streets? Was he pushed off the parking structure? Why was he even up there? I mean, yeah. When we started this, we thought maybe it was a suicide thing. People at the bar were... I I asked someone... I asked a bartender and he was like, Oh yeah, the jumper? Like it was some like shitty uh, slight at a suicide victim or something. And that's not what happened. It doesn't sound like... um, there was another person involved, so this is even worse than before somehow, but I don't know. Hopefully someone knows something. I hope that someone can come up with some information because I I feel terrible because I don't have anything else to add. All I saw was we walked into that restaurant. I didn't see any guy out there. Nothing was happening. We sat down in that restaurant for a while, and then and then all of the vehicles started showing up, so... Maybe some other listeners from California, from my area, also listen to Dead Bodies Podcast and know something. That would be nice. Because, oh my god, I can't even imagine what it's like for these parents. I just, I feel terrible. I want to know, but I also don't want to know. So that's what happened. I'm not an organized storyteller, but this is a better version than it was when I recorded it the first time. So thank you, ladies, so much. Thank you, Carter. And I feel like yours, and we can hear how deeply the experience has affected you. And I think that's 
quite a common response that we hear from people who have come across a dead body is that you feel those feelings of grief but you don't feel like you're supposed to because you didn't actually know the person. We spoke to Hugo in an early episode where he had come across three dead bodies but one in particular was um, really got to him. It was the girl who he was working on a pavement in the city and a girl fell from um, several floors above and landed on the, the footpath next to him. Um, and, and that really got to him. Um, if you want to go back and listen to that episode with Hugo in so um, it totally makes sense that that it stays in your head and one of the ways we do that and work through that is by talking about it and that's where hopefully this podcast is the place to be. On the feedback, we have uh, Belinda who's emailed us. She says, nice things, nice things. She says she loves the podcast and sort of wish she had an actual dead body story to share but the best story I've got is more accurately described as dead body adjacent. She says, I'm an opera singer and tomorrow is the opening night of La Boheme at the Wesley and until next Thursday, if you want to catch it, she says, where the main character Mimi famously dies at the end. Oh, she's playing Mimi. She says, I get to spend the last five minutes of the opera pretending to be a dead body on stage. (laughs) And it's seriously the best thing ever. I don't go the whole hog with the death rattle and losing consciousness, but I get to pretty much have a little nap on stage while everyone around me is crying and carrying on. Uh, Belinda says it's a career highlight. Keep up the awesome work. I'll keep hanging out on Mondays for my favourite podcast, which is Dead Bodies, of course. Nice things, nice things. I think it's really hard to play a dead person and I really watch um, when people die or no, you know, when you see um, like a law and order, because I love law and order um, and there's, they go to the coroner and there's a dead person on the bed. I always really watch to see if I can see the, the person breathing. I don't know why I do that. And it has nothing to do with this podcast because I feel like I've always done it because I'm a creep like that. Um, but I think it's hard to play a dead person. I need to know what you think about while you're just lying there for so long and if you're trying not to breathe because I would definitely be trying not to breathe. Anyway, love it. Oh, Chanel, I miss you and I miss Kirsten, um, but that's exactly the reason why I miss you because you are an absolute fruitcake. Um, although I have to confess, I often look at their eyes and their eyelashes, if you can see them, to see whether – because I think it's really hard to keep your eyes still if you're pretending to be a dead body. Did I ever tell you the dead bodies story where my husband and I rang our friends and asked them to come over for dinner and then we – but I've told you before, pretended to be dead bodies – yeah, on the floor uh, – We'd love to hear from you if you have a story. Deadbodiespodcast at gmail.com. Dead Bodies is created by DD Dunleavy and Chanel Vella and produced by Kirsten Lim Howe. Contact us at deadbodiespodcast at gmail.com.